Let's cultivate our motivation. And so when we look at the afflictions and we try and abandon them, we shouldn't do it by uh, simply saying to ourselves, oh, I shouldn't feel that way or I shouldn't think that way. But rather we should look at the thoughts, look at the story we're making and analyze it to see if it is reasonable or not. Because if we only tell ourselves, oh, I shouldn't be angry, for example, we might wind up suppressing it. Whereas if we look at all the reasons we're giving ourselves why our anger is valid and good and necessary, we may discover that the whole story and all those reasons are a bunch of hogwash. And upon seeing that, how nonsensical it is, then we just can very easily drop the anger or very easily drop the jealousy or whatever it is. So rather than base our practice of opposing the afflictions on a bunch of shoulds, we should really use our wisdom and see what is a correct and beneficial way to view the situation and then to adopt that way And in doing so, then there's nothing to be angry or upset with. So when we're able to deal with these kind of afflictions that come on a daily basis and quiet them a bit, then that gives us much more space for meditating on compassion, where we think of sentient beings' kindness, we think of their dukkha and samsara, and in that way, cultivate compassion. If we don't do anything with our anger, it's going to be very difficult to cultivate compassion because those two are really opposed. And then with compassion, then the wish to work for the benefit of sentient beings and to attain full Buddhahood in order to do so makes a lot of sense. And we can generate that without too much difficulty. But it takes a lot of effort and time, repetition. But we can certainly do that. So with that kind of motivation, then let's listen to his holiness's perspectives on many 
of the kinds of actions and fields of activity in society. So, we're on the last chapter of the book, Where's Holiness is talking about working in the world and applying the Dharma to um, many situations that we encounter in the world, in society, when we're working together with other people. Okay, but I'll repeat what His Holiness told me, that he doesn't want to make it sound like he has uh, instructions for how everybody in every field should do things. He's just sharing some of his ideas and perspectives. Okay, so we're on um, page 265, the section on science. So he says, in general, the Buddha's teachings fall into three categories. Buddha's science, which involves the Buddha's description of the external world, the physical body, and the nature of consciousness. <clears throat> Buddha's philosophy, which contains <clears throat> the Buddha's theory of reality. And Buddhist religion, the practice of the spiritual path. So he's been saying this a lot in recent years. Interdependence and causality are central concepts in Buddhist philosophy and are now applied to all fields. Scientists in particular know that changing one thing produces ramifications elsewhere, and a fruitful dialogue between modern science and Buddhist science and philosophy has begun. Buddhists speak about Buddhist science and certain concepts from Buddhist philosophies such as subtle impermanence and interdependence. Some scientists are also interested in Buddhist assertions that ultimate reality lacks independent existence and phenomena exist by mere designation. We Buddhists do not discuss Buddhist religious practice or Buddhist concepts such as past and future lives, karmic causality, and liberation with scientists. Those topics are our, Buddha, our business as the Buddhist followers. So His Holiness doesn't want to try and um, uh, convert anybody. Okay, in these the dialogues with scientists, if the scientists ask questions about things, you know, he'll explain, but he doesn't uh, volunteer about that. Okay, in this interdisciplinary discussion, we are not trying to use science to validate the Dharma. Okay, this is important, yeah, because uh, some people can look and say, oh, Buddhism is just old religion, it's just, you know, things people made up, but science is real, and if science comes to the same conclusions as Buddhism, then Buddhism must be right, okay? So that's not very good to do, because science keeps changing its mind, and also because the tools science uses to investigate and its field of investigation are very different than the tools Buddhists use in its field of, of investigation. So it doesn't make sense to use science, which investigates material things, to validate Buddhism, which uh, investigates how the mind works. 
Okay. Similarly, we should not use Buddhism to validate science. Okay, it goes the other way too. That uh, you know, some people uh, you know may say, "Oh, well, Buddhism says the same thing, so we're on the same track as scientists." Okay, somebody was telling me that uh, during one of the the uh, meetings, the you know Buddhist and science meetings in America, that in the audience there was a big feeling of of Buddha, Buddhism is going to validate science. Yeah, but then I remember one of my Tibetan friends, uh, you know, when he heard about, you know, your EEGs and, and no, EEGs are up here, right? EKGs are down here. I get him confused. <laughs> so <laughs> your EEGs, um, he thought, oh, well, maybe someday uh, we can test people's realizations by testing their EEGs, you know. So that doesn't make any sense, you know. This is one one of my friends who's a Buddhist monk said that, and I was very puzzled. Okay, so you know they're they're distinct fields, but they can have a very fruitful dialogue together. Okay, and what's been happening is, uh, you know, it started out in the late eighties. Um, with the Mind and Life Institute. And now there's so many different projects uh, in universities uh, where, you know, Buddhists and scientists are talking. And at Drepung Monastery in Mungot, they even built a science center. And as we know, one of our friends has been going there uh, and teaching physics to the monks and, and the nuns as well. Okay. And so they're educating some of the Tibetans to become scientists in the uh, monasteries and nunneries, which is kind of interesting. Okay. In this, uh, okay. So Buddhists have a long history of realized spiritual practitioners who have validated the efficacy of the path through their personal experience. So we don't need scientists to tell us what we're doing is going to work. Okay. Buddhism has survived nearly 2,600 years without the support or approval of science. We will continue. <laughs> However, I, our dialogue is good for society as it is an example of the modern and the ancient learning uh the modern and the ancient, learning from and complementing each other. Over the years, the dialogue has sparked many projects. For example, teaching mindfulness to help reduce physical pain and mental stress, and developing programs for teachers to instruct their students in compassionate thought and action. And many of our lay supporters at the Abbey are involved in these kinds of projects. In addition, we Tibetans have begun science education in some of our monasteries and nunneries, and a few Tibetan monks are now, and nuns, are now studying science at Western universities like Emory, and we had one of the nuns come and visit us a while ago. Mark this down as something to uh, ch uh, change when I send in the corrections that I should add, and nuns. 
Okay. And then they bring their knowledge back to the debate ground. Okay. So it's, it's really quite fruitful. And it's, um, you know, it's making, it's having an effect on Buddhism in the sense that, you know, they've been studying for years how to refute the ideas of the Samkhyas and the Mamashikas and, you know, and I don't know how many of those people are still around today. Um, some of their ideas, you know, are, are around, so it's helpful to learn that. But now I think, you know, people, uh, it's more scientific reductionism that is the big challenge to Buddhist uh, philosophy and saying that, uh, you know, everything human beings are uh, is the brain and outs, you know, the mind is an emergent property of the brain, and so on and so forth. And so, it's it's very important that as Buddhists we learn how to discuss these kinds of ideas with scientists. You know, otherwise, uh, you know, uh, they may make a case, and what do we do? We just stand there. Yeah, and so we have to be informed about others' views so that we can, you know. Uh, agree with the parts that, you know, are logical and reasonable and present arguments against the parts that we consider erroneous. Okay, so it's kind of like what they did at Nalanda and Vrkamasila, the ancient Indian monasteries, except now it's happening with Western universities and, you know, science and, and so on. So it's a very good dialogue and very interesting, yeah. I appreciate the scientific perspective very much. Yeah, His Holiness, since the time he was really little, he likes investigating things. They say when he was a little boy, he would take watches, which they didn't have many of in Tibet, and they would t he would take them apart and put them back together again. And somebody gave him a car. I think they must have carried the different parts, you know, either from China or over the Himalayas, and then assembled it in Tibet. You know, but there were there were no asphalt roads in Tibet when His Holiness was a kid. But he loved playing with his car. Yeah. And, you know, he, he really liked that kind of stuff. Okay, so he likes, you know, studying how, how physical things work. So scientists are looking for truth, for reality. They approach their investigation with an open mind and are willing to revise their ideas if their, if their findings do not correspond to their original theories. As the Buddha's followers, we too are looking for truth and reality. The Buddha wanted us to test his teachings, not to just accept them blindly. This, this accords with the scientific way. Okay, and then what he says is really radical for most Tibetans. If scientists can disprove points in the Buddhist scriptures, we must accept their findings. Because of the similarity of our approach, I do not think there is any danger in discussion with scientists. Their attitude is objective, they are open to the investigation of new things, and they are intelligent. Yeah, And he says if they can disprove something that is in a Buddhist scripture, then we were looking for truth. We should follow what science says. 
Okay. And the Geshe's kind of shake when he says that. Okay. And then he explains why to them that the world is round and it's not flat, even though Vasubandhu said it was flat. Okay. And how he's not criticizing Vasubandhu, he's not abandoning the tradition, but he's just, you know, using wisdom in accord with how the Buddha said to use it, you know, to check things out. Within Buddhist science, as we saw in chapter 8, there are three categories of phenomena, evident, slightly obscure, and very obscure. Up until now, common dialogue, common topics of dialogue with scientists have focused on evident phenomena and a little bit regarding slightly obscure phenomena, such as subtle impermanence and emptiness. Within the category of evident phenomena, we have discussed topics found in physics, neurology, cognitive science, psychology, and so forth. It is useful for Buddhists to study scientific findings. For example, while Buddhist literature speaks about subtle particles, scientific knowledge of that topic is more advanced. Yeah. On the other hand, some scientists are searching for the smallest particle of which everything is made, and that's an idea that Buddhists can refute because everything has to have parts and you can mentally dissect it and get something smaller. Okay. Uh, learning about the brain's role in cognition and emotion is new and interesting for Buddhists. However, Regarding perception and psychology, Buddhist literature is much richer, and psychologists and neurologists find Buddhist findings and experiences regarding attention and emotion very helpful. Okay, So the whole idea that you can develop samadhi and serenity and uh, have uh, pay attention to one object for a long period of time you know, that's really fascinating to the scientists. Uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what is emotion, you know, because they'll point to different areas of the brain and say this is where the emotion is. But is, uh, you know, is, is the brain what's actually experiencing the, motion, the emotion? Yeah. So it, it's interesting. It, it really, um, yeah, brings out some some interesting topics. Also, I mean, just the whole idea of the mind uh, having a different continuum from the body, and when um, people, you know, highly realized people die, that there there's there can be no brain waves, no uh, heartbeat, no you know breath, but the consciousness is still in the body and they're meditating on a very subtle level. So, you know, the scientists are really intrigued with that. Okay. Um, okay. Both Buddha Dharma and science can benefit humanity, and both also have limitations. Science helps us understand the physical basis upon which the mind depends while we are alive. 
However, because scientific research requires physical measurements of external phenomena, it lacks the tools to investigate things beyond the scope of our physical senses. Although science has contributed greatly to human knowledge about some topics, it lacks the tools necessary to fully understand every aspect of human beings. Yeah, so it can it can tell you what neurons go off, you know, when people experience a certain thing, but it can't tell you who or what is experiencing the motivation, you know, that that particular thought or feeling or cognition. Mm. Scientists can benefit from learning the vast knowledge Buddhism possesses about the mind. For example, distinguishing sensory and mental consciousnesses. You know, as we've seen when we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how difficult it is for us to distinguish sensory and mental consciousnesses and differentiate between direct perceivers and conceptual consciousnesses in our own experience. We can get the idea and say the words, but to find all those things in our own experience is not as easy as it would seem. Okay. Uh, so, for example, distinguishing sensory and mental consciousnesses and differentiating between minds that directly perceive their object uh, and conceptual consciousnesses that know their objects via conceptual appearance. Buddhism, so science doesn't talk anything about that. Buddhism also describes various levels of consciousness and how they function, as well as the power the mind gains through developing single-pointed concentration. Buddhist psychology describes mental states conducive to human happiness and those that are unrealistic and bring suffering. I was at uh, one of the mind and life conferences uh, early on where they were discussing, uh, you know, the whole idea of emotions. And there isn't a clear Tibetan word for emotions. You know, something that we take so for granted that everybody knows what emotions are. They don't have one word that means emotions. Okay. And so... When they were asking the Buddhists about, well, how do you differentiate different states? What the Buddhists pulled out was uh, what was in the whole thing of mind and mental factors, especially the 51 mental factors. And the scientists were going, but not all of these mental factors are emotions. Yeah, things like attention, intention, contact, you know, um, the, these aren't emotions. Some of them are views, yeah, how, how you view an object, or your, your ideas about it. And they were very puzzled about the Buddhist list and how it came to be. And so the Buddhist explained, well, this is a list for people who are interested in attaining liberation. And it talks about the mental factors to be abandoned because they uh, create non-virtue when we act on them, and the mental factors to be cultivated because uh, 
you know, we create virtue when we act on those. So it was a totally different way of looking at things for the scientists. Yeah. And especially including views and attitudes among the mental factors. And then when the scientists talked about their list of mental factors, um, you know, they had a lot of things that weren't in the Buddhist list, like friendliness. Yeah. Now, would you consider friendliness an, as an emotion? You know, it was in the, the list that the scientists had. Yeah. So it, it's interesting when we look at different ways to, to view emotions and what constitutes an emotion. I believe that in this century, many new ideas and findings will come. Enlarging sciences, science's field of investigation. Continuing dialogue between Buddhists and scientists is important, so both can expand their knowledge, methodologies, and ways of thinking. Dialogues with scientists have been fruitful, and some of the perspectives I have gained from them are included in this book, which we saw at the beginning. Yeah, I encourage more Buddhist monasteries to introduce science into their curriculum. Studying scientific findings and dialoguing with scientists help us to cultivate faith-based faith, help us to cultivate faith based on analysis and investigation. In addition, for Buddhism to be taken seriously in the West and among the young Tibetans in India with a modern education, Buddhist practitioners and teachers must be conversant with scientific assumptions. Okay. So I think this is one of the reasons why His Holiness has been doing so many dialogues with science in recent years. You know, uh, years ago when he came to the West, he would teach courses for Buddhists. Um, he's not coming to the West so much now because he's older. But, uh, you know, even a few years ago when he came, he would mostly do Science, you know, events with scientists. We Buddhists were feeling a bit left out. But I think it's because, uh, you know, of the respect that people have for science in the West. And by showing that the Buddhism is open to this dialogue, that science values the Buddhist perception, perspective, and Buddhists value the scientific pers uh, perspective, that showing that to people in the West um, helps them um, believe in the credibility of, of the Buddha's teachings and to take the teachings more seriously. And so I think he's, he's uh, doing it for, for that reason. And also because he's very interested in these things. Um, but also, also, like he mentions in here, it has to do with the young Tibetans. Um, some years ago, I, I gave a talk to some, uh, a group of young Tibetans in Bangalore, and the questions they were asking were just like what West, young Western students of the same age were asking. You know, like, how do you know there's a hell realm? How do you know there's different realms? You know? And so it was really interesting. And so I began to see that to keep the youth as Buddhists, you know, the Tibetan elders need to present the Dharma in a way that accords much more with uh, modern education.
It's okay, sweetheart. Okay. Similarly, I encourage scientists to stretch the field of their investigation. The ultimate laboratory is in our own mind and body, and for this, meditation is important. Scientists who develop internal awareness of their own cognitive and emotional processes through meditation will bring new vigor to scientific exploration. And so now the Mind and, Science, uh, Mind and Life Institute at uh, the Garrison Institute, every summer they have courses for uh, PhD students and postdoc students in science to learn meditation and learn something about Buddhism. My main purpose in dialoguing with scientists is to bring a deeper awareness about the value to society of living an ethical life. Now that's interesting. So many of our problems you know, are due to people's lack of care for the ethical dimensions of their actions and the effect their behavior has on others. We need to make more effort to promote inner values, but doing that is difficult if they are based only on religious ideas that appeal only to people following a particular religion. Secular ethics that speak of universal values appealed to believers of all religions and to non-believers as well. So I think what he's emphasizing here, you know, how are you connecting uh, secular ethics with scientists? Uh, I think he's, he's trying to get the scientists on board of, you know, thinking about uh, ethical conduct and especially... Um, having scientists and people who are in the technological fields to think more about the effects of their actions and their research and, you know, what's going to happen to what they invent and what they discover and how is that going to affect society because, you know, there's an ethical dimension there that's quite important. Scientists have found and continue to find connections between our mental states on the one hand and our physical health and the quality of our social interactions on the other. Scientific findings demonstrate the benefits of compassion, a peaceful mind, and ethical living. Yeah, so there you have it, you know. If scientists can show that when you have compassion, that your health is better, you heal from surgeries more, then, uh, you know, the, the society will be more interested in compassion. Maybe not for exactly the right reason, but hopefully by, you know, training their minds in compassion, then slowly they'll come to have the right reason for, you know, uh, cultivating it. Since the results of scientific research are respected internationally, their findings can be used to support the advancement of secular ethics for the benefit of society. Yeah. And so really showing, you know, if, if, you know, if you're able to calm your anger and you can show by scientific means the effect on the body, you know, then people begin to think of anger in a different way. So this kind of thing. 
Okay, now, topic of gender equality. Women's rights uh, to have equal opportunity in all fields must be respected. I don't believe that in the past, society in general or Buddhist institutions in particular deliberately discriminated against women. Rather, they were negligent and simply assumed that men should lead because larger and stronger bodies made them more fit to lead. But this concept is no longer valid, and it is not even true historically. Napoleon was physically small, but very clever, and he became a powerful leader. <laughs> so he's very generous here in saying, you know, he doesn't believe that society in general or Buddhist institutions deliberately discriminated against women. You know, I think... It's, uh, you know, it's just the cultures that Buddhism grew up in and a lot of the attitudes in those cultures got put into uh, some of the Buddhist scriptures. We don't know if the Buddha said them or if other people put them in later. But. In addition, men assumed that they were intellectually superior and less dominated by their emotions. However, as the Buddha noted, men and women have the same afflictions, and men and women are equally bound in cyclic existence by these afflictions. For civilized society, intelligence is far more important than physical strength, and in this regard, men and women are equal. Everyone should have a good education and be able to use their talents and abilities to contribute to society. Equal opportunity means equal responsibility, and men and women should share these. Okay? So he's, um, you know, it's interesting because what he says does, is not the typical Tibetan view. Okay? Typical Tibetan view is... Men are smarter, men are superior, uh, women are weaker uh, physically and mentally. Okay, I remember one time, uh, this is many years ago, uh, and I was staying at a Dharma center, and so one of the members of the center, she and I were talking to the Geshe there. And so he started to explain why uh, women were inferior because when there was a fight, the women ran away instead of staying there and fighting. And we said, we think that's intelligent. You know, staying there and fighting physically with somebody is really dumb. Yeah, he didn't believe us. But, you know, but I think it's really true, yeah. So... <laughs> People tend to identify strongly according to their gender. But as Aryadeva points out, there is no inherently existent inner self that is male, female, or other. Oh my goodness, if you say this in society today, they're all going to jump on you and tell you that you, you don't see their identity, you're ignoring them, you're not respecting them. I've had that happen to me, you know, when I'm trying to deconstruct identities. And you know very well how students are everything in my identity. Don't you criticize? Yeah. 
so poor Aryadeva. Well, I wouldn't say poor Aryadeva. He will fight back, you know, if he were alive. And some of the students said, you know, you, I have an identity and you better respect it. Aryadeva would, you know, intellectually tear him to bits. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He said, what identity? Who is that person? Who is the person that is that identity that you're clinging to? Where did that identity come from? Show it to me. Yeah. Who made it? How did it come about? Isn't it just constructed by thought? If it's constructed by thought, isn't it just fabricated by human beings? Yeah. Is there really any objective, uh, you know, essence to these identities that you're holding on to? He would really go after that. He was a great debater, yeah, Nagarjuna's student. Okay. Uh, so as Aryadeva points out, there is no inherently existent inner self that is male, female, or other. The body is also not an inherently existent man or woman because none of the elements that compose the body have a gender. Our body is made of atoms and molecules, yeah. Are, do atoms and molecules, are they male, female, you know, uh, both, neither? Uh, I mean, there's so many gender identities and more appearing each day. I can't keep up with it. But are, are, do are the atoms that, can, that compose the body, do they have a gender? Yeah. I mean, they don't. Although from the viewpoint of emptiness, no distinction can be made between men and women, that is no excuse to ignore sexual discrimination. The status of men and women in Buddhist institutions is not equal, and this has a deleterious effect on female and male practitioners, as well as on the acceptance of Buddhism in Western society. All forms of exclusivity are based on an attitude of me versus them, which is not suitable for genuine practitioners. True practitioners are humble and regard everyone as their teacher. They work to benefit sentient beings, or all beings. I was also at uh, a conference of Western Buddhist teachers with His Holiness, and uh, we were, you know, the the... Buddhist teachers broke up into small groups and then made presentations to His Holiness of different things going on in the West. So Sylvia Wetzel, she's German, um, an old friend of mine from way back. Uh, so she did the presentation about um, women in Buddhism. And she led uh, His Holiness through a visualization, you know, because we visualize a lot. So visualize that you come into a room to listen to a Buddhist teachings. The teacher is women, is a woman. All the important people surrounding her are women. The whole front of the audience is women. The men sit way in the back, and they don't dare come up to the front. Yeah. And uh, and then 
but the, but the the women are actually quite compassionate towards the men, and they tell the men that if they practice very well in this lifetime and create a lot of virtue and pray to be reborn as a woman, then next life they can attain the superior rebirth as a woman. So she's going on and on like this. So the Westerners are cracking up. We are laughing. And I know Tupton Jimper pretty well, and I've never seen his face like this. <laughs> yeah. He was just like, what's going on? And his holiness also, I mean, so perplexed. And then the reply was, well, if even a fly can attain an awakening, so can women. That was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> Yeah, but it was really interesting. We, it's probably on the, um, you know, you found it, the, the Meridium. Yeah, I bet you we could find it and watch it. It was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they really, it was very hard. There were some other llamas in there listening. They, they just didn't get it. It was beyond what they had ever thought about before. Because in this, in their culture, this is just the way the things are. And when you're in the superior group, you never notice that you are. It's only when you're in the minority group that you notice that, you know, there's differences in, in power. But in the majority group, you know, you don't notice at all. And so the, the monks were just, like shocked. It was so interesting. Were there Tibetan nuns there? Uh, no. Why would there be Tibetan nuns? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, they, they, at the early things, they never invited the nuns. Never, ever, ever. Okay. I was one of the few nuns there. Um, you know, it was mostly lay, I mean, if there were Western monks, but the other women were mostly lay people. Um, yeah, it, it's like, why, why would they invite the nuns? <laughs> they don't count. And this is what is so, um, yeah, I have to say this because the two of you are here. When, um, when I go to Taiwan, you know, and I hear in Vietnam too, there's many more nuns than monks, that the, the feeling is totally different. Yeah. I remember, um, many years ago, Venerable Buyan invited a, a whole big group of nuns out, uh, for a meal at a restaurant. And we were all, we all happened to be on the same subway car or the same subway train, you know, and then coming out of the subway, all these nuns everywhere. And it's something I've, you know, you never see here in the West, you know, and you may see a group of nuns in, in the Tibetan community, but not like this. And I was just like, wow, look at all these nuns, you know, and the, the nuns are a very powerful influence. And the monks in Taiwan really respect the nuns, 
you know, they respect them very much. And, um, and so a few years ago, they, they had an, uh, a reward, an award ceremony for, for Buddhist nuns. And so Venerable, um, Ananda Bodhi, she's a Theravada nun, and I were among the people who were invited to go. And, uh, and they had a big award ceremony. There were like 10,000 people, huh? 15,000 people there you know, in a huge stadium. And when the nuns walked in, the lay people were standing there clapping. Ananda Bodhi and I were like, what's going on here? You know, because both in the Tibetan tradition and the Theravada tradition, it's like, <laughs> you know. And then here we were, and the people were so excited to see nuns. And we were just, Shocked, yeah. That's really something. Hmm? So, you're both very lucky to live in in countries where there's the nuns are quite strong and prominent. Yeah, it, it makes a it makes a difference. Yeah. Okay. Women must develop self-confidence and take every opportunity to make themselves equal in all fields. Some women are accomplished practitioners, but they are shy and therefore do not teach or take leadership positions. Especially those practicing the Bodhisattva path should develop great self-confidence, inner strength, and courage. They must take the initiative studying and developing their qualities and not get discouraged by the defeatist resignation that society is simply sexist. Okay. If they encounter prejudice from, lo from social and religious institutions, they should speak up and we must work together to tackle these problems. So his holiness is just, I mean, he's beyond the beyond in terms of, of having uh, this kind of mentality in the Tibetan community. Um, in the past, there has been a shortage of well-known female role models in Buddhism. This is due in part to lack of knowledge about great female practitioners of the past. More books and articles that focus on past and present female practitioners are needed. In India, the Buddha's stepmother was an extraordinary nun praised by the Buddha himself. The Indian nun Bhikshuni Lakshmi had a vision of thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara and is the first lineage holder of this practice, of the Nune practice. That will do in a couple of weeks. Naropa's sister Niguma was a great tantric adept as were Machik Lapdrandroma and Dorji Pagmo in Tibet. The reincarnation of uh, reincarnation lineage of Dorji Pagmo began very early on, more or less at the same time as that of the Karmapa, and continues today. The Vinaya record no, the Vinaya records that when the Buddha began the nun's order, he stated that women to were able to attain liberation and become arhats. And many stories of liberated women exist in the scriptures. 
uh, Sutrayana and the three lower tantras state that one has to have a male body in the final life before attaining Buddhahood. But in Tibetan Buddhism, highest yoga tantra is the final authority, and here males and females and males are equally capable of attaining full awakening. Highest Yoga Tantra emphasizes cultivating respect for women, and one of the root tantric precepts forbids disparaging women. Okay. There's some interesting uh, uh, things in some of the sutras where, what's the, the, what's the name of the sutra? I can't remember it right now. Um, where one um, uh, one woman changes Shariputra into a woman. Was that Vimalakirti? Because it happens in another sutra too. Um, the, was it the, the Naga king's daughter? Something like that. But, uh, you know, and how shocked poor Shariputra was. <laughs> yeah. And, like, where did you get that power to do that? <laughs> and then, of course, at the end, she transformed him back to a man. But quite, quite interesting. Mm. The discriminatory statements against women in the Buddhist scriptures were made due to societal circumstances at the Buddhist time and later when the scriptures were actually written down. Since this prejudice arose due to cultural bias, it can and must be changed. Other things, for example, bhikshus being the preceptors of bhikshunis, seem like prejudice, but are difficult for one person to change. A council of Sangha elders from all Buddhist traditions would need to meet and agree in order to change that. According to the Vinaya, bhikshus sit and walk in front of bhikshunis. While bhikshunis are governed by more precepts, most of them are for their protection. Because women are more prone to being raped or bullied than men, to offset these risks, the Buddha established precepts that prevent women from encountering dangerous situations. Okay, so yeah, the the... In the Vinaya, the monks do go in front of the nuns. Uh, Lama Yeshi really changed that. He had uh, monks and nuns uh, sit on different sides of the room, but you know the front row half side. You know, front rows half men on this side, half women on this side, and and back like that. He didn't put the nuns behind the the monks. And here at the abbey, we don't do the, any of that either. Yeah. So there seems to be specific instruction uh, for females to take action mm -hmm. on certain things. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be general instruction on for the broader community. Mm -hmm. Are there very specific instructions for men or for monks as there are specific instructions for women uh, in, in terms of responding to this discrimination? Um. Well, the the one tantric precept that His Holiness mentioned, where you're not supposed to deprecate women, so there is one precept about that. There are different precepts, like um, um, a monk cannot ask a nun to do his laundry, yeah, and or to give or make a nun give him food, 
So, you know, there's things within the monastic discipline so that the monks can't take advantage of the nuns. I'm thinking a little bit more to remedy the situation. So there were specific oh. instructions given to women to re supposedly oh. remedy the situation. Okay. So, so are there specific instructions given to men to oh, remedy I the see. situation? Oh, I see. So I haven't heard His Holiness give specific instructions to men. No. I mean, what he says, uh, he, you know, about men and women being equal, you know, uh, the men are hearing that too. Uh, but he's not giving them specific instructions how to, how to remedy it. He's basically saying that the women uh, need to really step up to the plate and use their talents and abilities. And I guess the idea is then if the women do that, then the men will see their value and it will change that way. Okay. But the idea of affirmative action for women, the quotas for women in admission to different things, that that's that's not in society, Tibetan society. It doesn't it doesn't function like that. Well, I'm thinking more along the concept of, for example, let's say to dismantle racism. Uh-huh. Um one might say that that's really a problem for white folks mm, mm -hmm. to take on primarily right? because we built the system. Yeah. We can't keep asking people of color to continue to do that work. Uh -huh. It's our work. Yeah. So I'm applying the same thinking to this situation. No, there's nothing, no. none of that. Thank you. And that kind of view just came into our society just recently in the last couple of years. Very true. Very true. Yeah. But no, Tibetan society is, no, yeah. The, the main thing there is what in Tibetan society, one lama explained to me, reform means going back to, in the past, to what they did. Yeah. So we think reform means doing something new that hasn't been done before. They think reform is things have gotten too loose and you need to reform it and go back to the way it was because that's closer to the way the system was set up or what the Buddha said or whatever. Very different kind of culture than we have. Yeah, very different. And, you know, I've discovered that if you try and talk to Tibetan men about the issue of women. I mean, I can talk about it with maybe two or three of my male Tibetan friends. But aside from that, forget it. I don't even try. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. We're from a different culture, and we have our own ideas. And, you know, why... Should you know we have no right to step in and tell them how to run their culture? They say, and there's a certain reason to that, and so that's why I've chosen to function more in the Western situation, where uh, you know I think I can be more effective, you know, and at the same time encourage the Tibetan nuns and do what I can to help them. But also their way of thinking is uh, they really accept the system in many ways. 
because they've been taught that since they were this big. And, uh, yeah, and whenever they try and change, their teachers, you know. So, however, in terms of rights, both men and women are equal. Just as a man has the right and opportunity to become a monk, so a woman has the right and opportunity to become a nun. The Bhikshuni Sangha of fully ordained nuns is responsible for the screening and training of women who are candidates for novice and full ordination. They are responsible for running their own communities and teaching other nuns. Bhikshunis are ordained by a process involving both the bhikshuni and the bhikshu sanghas, and the monks must teach the dharma to the nuns when requested. Okay, now you have the but. Okay, since full, the full ordination lineage for women do not, did not spread to Tibet, yeah, the women do, you know, uh, you always have a male abbot for a nunnery. Yeah, you may have a head nun, and the nun is run a lot the office and other things, but there's always a male abbot who's the teacher and uh, makes the final decisions. Also, I noticed in, in Mangot, the nunnery there, they have to report things to the Tibetan government who, uh, you know, looks over them and makes rules for them and so on. Uh, it's quite difficult because they don't have the full ordination. And that makes a difference. Even though the monks tell them it doesn't make a difference because they still have the bodhisattva and tantric precepts. Okay, and, and just to give you an example of how the nuns have internalized this, you know, one of my friends, I've known her for years, she's one of the Geshima, she just got her Geshe degree, and um, very competent. And when we were at a teaching a few years back, uh, the Westerners, we were sitting inside, we often get to, the Tibetan nuns were out somewhere in the back. There was some room where we were sitting, and I said to my, my friend, come sit with us. And she said, oh, no, we can't sit inside the temple. I said, why not? We're sitting inside there, and there's space around us. Oh, no, only the monks do that. We can't go sit inside the temple. Yeah, they refused when we offered them the seats. Okay, so, yeah, there it is. Mm. Okay, since the full ordination lineage for women did not spread to Tibet, it is my hope that it will be established and the bhikshuni ordination given in the Tibetan community. And His Holiness really wants that, and he doesn't talk about it hardly at all anymore because there was so much resistance. Okay, And the resistance was mostly on the part of the Galupas. The Nyingmas and Kargus are much more favorable towards that. It is also my hope that, uh, that more nuns will become teachers in their own right and abbesses in the nunneries. This has happened to some extent in Tibetan Buddhist monasteries in the West and certainly is the case in the Chinese Buddhist community. A story in the Pali Canon tells of Bhikkhuni Soma, who was meditating one day in the forest. 
Mara, the embodiment of evil, appears, and with the intention of making her lose her meditative concentration, says, that state so hard to achieve that is to be attained by the seers cannot be attained by a woman with her two-fingered wisdom. Okay, so Bhikkhuni Soma immediately recognized that it was Mara who was trying to make her afraid uh, and lose her self-confidence and fall away from her concentration. So she immediately identified this as Mara. Many women hear this and they say, oh, that's true, that's true. You know, I have two-fingered wisdom, I can't attain this, it's, I'm just, you know, playing, okay? But she recognized it was Mara, meaning, you know, that she recognized it was an affliction, an afflicted mind or an afflicted view. And she firmly replied, what does womanhood matter at all when the mind is concentrated well, when knowledge flows on steadily as one sees correctly into the Dhamma. One to whom it might occur, I'm a woman or I'm a man or I'm anything at all, is fit for Mara to address. So there's no objective entity to men or women, and anybody who thinks there is can go study with Mara. In this instance, knowledge refers to the knowledge of the four truths in the continuum of an arhat. As an arhat, Bhikkhuni Soma had eradicated all defilements preventing liberation. Only someone who adheres to craving, conceit, and views the defilements that lie beyond false conceptualizations. No, the, the, the defilements that lie behind false conceptualizations, is a receptive audience for Mara's rantings. Those with knowledge and vision do not grasp onto a self or fabricate identities and will not fall prey to Mara. They continue their practice and virtuous activities undaunted. So we should take His Holiness's words seriously. Okay, the next section is on interfaith. I don't think we'll be able to finish this section tonight, but we will certainly finish it next week. We'll start. Buddhists should try to create friendly and respectful relations with people of other faiths. For me, Buddhism is the best, and it suits me perfectly, but it is not necessarily the best for everyone. Therefore, I accept and respect all religious traditions. So this is, you know, is so brilliant. And one of the things that I really respect about the Buddhist teachings is that nobody goes around and says, you know, we're the best, and if you don't believe in us, you're going to hell. Okay? Rather, we see that people have different um, uh, dispositions, different interests, and so uh, it's good that there's a variety of, of different religions because they basically emphasize the same uh, human values and principles. And so if people find a theology, you know, which kind of 
it lies behind the values and principles, which is where uh, most religions differ, not in the ethical dimension, but in the in the uh, theology. Uh, you know, so if people find a theology that makes sense to them, that encourages them to practice good ethical conduct, then as Buddhists we say, fantastic, wonderful. You know that that really benefits them. Okay. Jains, uh, Buddhists, and one branch of Hindu Samkhyas do not believe in a creator god, while Jews, Christians, and Muslims do. Uh, if we look only at this, we see a big difference among religions. However, the purpose of the religious theories of no god and of God is the same, to make better human beings. Human minds are so varied and different that one philosophy cannot suit uh, them all. Many philosophies are needed to suit the many kinds of mentality. Okay, so you, if as long as a philosophy, you know, or a theology encourages good values and good ethical conduct, you know, that's wonderful. It makes better human beings. How can we criticize? Okay, and if we get attached to our religion, I see this sometimes when I go to Singapore, um, you know, because there's a very strong Christian community and they really actively proselytize, that sometimes there's this feeling uh, of like football teams, you know, my religion, rah, rah, we're the best, rah, rah. You people are heathens. You people are backwards. You know, our religion is best. And it creates such a bad feeling, you know. And then both in Singapore and in this country, uh, sometimes I meet, you know, families that are Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu or whatever, and they have been told by some Christians that they're going to hell. Um, my sister-in-law, after her father died, he was a really nice man. They had some neighbors who were Christian, and the one of the neighbors said, you know, we feel really sad because, you know, your father is going to go to hell because he didn't believe in Jesus, said that to her when she was grieving his death. So that kind of attitude, whether you find it in Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, whoever you find it in, that is the opposite of what is meant by compassion. Yeah. So we should never act or say things like that to other people or have that attitude that somehow we're superior. As His Holiness said, you know, in the beginning, he said, for me, Buddhism is the best and it suits me perfectly, but it is not necessarily the best for everyone. Okay, so we should respect that for other people, other things are best. Yeah. And the example is often given at a smorgasbord where some people, you know, will eat rice and some people prefer noodles and some people want gluten-free 
food and other people will eat gluten and, you know, some people like cabbage and other people don't and some people, uh, you know, like, uh, I don't know what, but other people don't. And, you know, so the, the whole point is that people take what nourishes them and preserves their life. Yeah, everybody doesn't have to eat the same food. So similarly, you know, regarding religions, if we, uh, you know, everybody will find, should find something that makes sense to them that they can practice. All great religious leaders endeavor to lead their followers away from selfishness, anger, and greed. All emphasize relinquishing violence and rampant materialism. By understanding their common function and aim, we will see that the superficial differences in religious theology are due to the differences in the spiritual needs of people in a particular place at that time. Knowing this, we can avoid sectarianism, partisanship, and disparaging any authentic religious teaching. This variety in religions is a blessing, not a difficulty. Yeah, sometimes people ask me, you know, shouldn't we just try and have one religion? You know, why? You know, or, um, you know, the, uh, people will say to me, oh, you know, don't all the religions lead to the same point? As if in order to get along, we have to lead to the same point. And I always say, I haven't gotten to the end point of my own religion, let alone anybody else's. So I can't tell you if they lead, all lead to the same point. But I don't need, think they need to in order for us to get along. By understanding their common, the f- common function and aim of all these religions, we will see that the superficial differences in religious theology are due to differences in the spiritual needs of people in a particular place at that time. Knowing this, we can avoid sectarianism, partisanship, and disparaging any authentic religious teaching. This uh, variety in religions is a blessing, not a difficulty. This, just as there is a tremendous variety of food, giving each person the opportunity to eat what suits their taste and constitution, the great variety in religion enables each person to choose the belief system most suitable for them. Trying to make everyone accept the same religion is impossible, and would not be beneficial. Some people find it more comfortable to believe in a creator. Being a God-fearing person, they are disciplined and careful in their actions. This approach benefits these people. Other people may be more conscientious regarding their motivations and behavior when they believe that the responsibility lies within themselves. Both of these approaches share the same purpose in encouraging people to live ethically and to be kind to each other. My Christian and Muslim friends weep with faith when they pray to God, and their lives are devoted to service to others. 
I appreciate Christian brothers and sisters who make great effort to educate others. And he often tells Buddhist monastics that they should do more social service like the Christian uh, monks and nuns do. Hindus also work in education and health care. Their selfless effort to help others is due to devotion to God. People of other religions who practice sincerely create good karma and will have good future lives. In other words, to have a good rebirth, you don't need to be a Buddhist. Virtuous actions alone will not lead to nirvana, however, because that depends on realizing selflessness. But uh, people from other religions can definitely have good rebirths. Although some individuals may misinterpret the teachings of their own religion or use religion to incite hostility, I have never encountered true religious teachings that that preach hatred and violence. We should abandon all such actions in the name of religion. Many centuries ago, Buddhists suffered under Muslim invaders in India. But now the Muslims in Bodhgaya help the Buddhist pilgrims there. Each year when I go to Bodhgaya, they invite me and we share food. Sincere Muslim practitioners are very good human beings. It is important that we remember this and not generalize about all people of a certain faith based on the harmful actions of a few who misuse their religion to justify their destructive actions. I've not heard of the Dorji Pagmo reincarnation lineage, Mm -hmm. Venerable. Could you say a little bit about what that is? Mm. Yeah. Like as Helena said, the, the Karmapa... I think was the first one where they actually started identifying incarnations. And so Dorji Pamo uh, was originated her lineage close to that. Dorji Pamo is actually um, one of the, the tantric deities, uh, an aspect of Vajra Yogini. And the present Dorji Pamo, she stayed in Tibet. She didn't flee to India and some people were criticizing her because she was working together with the with the chinese for a while but i think that that has been resolved i don't know if she's still alive or not does anybody know somebody could probably look it up easily um yeah I wanted to share two things. Some some time ago, remember I went to a translation seminar and I met a Vietnamese American young woman who had grown up in Chinese Buddhism, mm-hmm. and she and her sister contacted me um, on the presumably to talk about like a college paper. But I think really they wanted to talk about uh, patriarchy in Buddhism mm. and how they had observed that growing up in a Buddhist community and as now college age young women, they had so many questions about like. They were asking me if I felt oppressed or how I worked with it as a monastic. And you could Uh see it was affecting their faith. Yeah. And that they couldn't ask those questions in their own community. So I felt it was so important that we have these conversations, Mm -hmm. and especially as women monastics. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it will affect the next generation. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I think this thing, like just even having the Varsa, with the bhikshunis in in, um, in Shravasti in India next year, 
you know, I think that's making a statement and it draws attention and it shows, you know, here's women and they're following Vinaya and doing the rituals and and everything. So it's it's I I think, you know, really getting um yeah, just just us doing what we should be doing as nuns, yeah, has uh, uh you know, a tremendous effect on uh, the people who see that. Mm-hmm. And this week, Geshe Ladrin is at the first remade uh, Tibetan nun seminar on the Pramanavartika chapter one. And she's presenting a paper there. Oh, very good. So the nuns are gathering to talk about Pramanavartika? Oh, very good. For the quotes from Bhikkhuni Soma, mm-hmm. I'm still, when we're referring to the audience of Mara's rantings, how do we look at who in which, I don't want to get into having a physical manifestation, but for us to be able to look at this, is this the self-centered thought? Is this the self-grasping ignorance? Is this the yeah. deluded doubt that would be a manif- manifesting? I'd okay. like to understand this relationship. Yeah, so Mara is anthropomorphizing uh, all of our afflictions. So whichever affliction is prominent there, whether it's self-grasping ignorance or or uh, conceit or clinging to views or self-centered thought, all those are Mara's manifestation. So this is, you know, it's working with symbols in the same way that the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, you know, how he was meditating and then uh, all these weapons and people trying to kill him appeared. They were... Uh, manifestations of Mara. It's not that there's some guy named Mara sitting up there, you know. It's it's this is coming from our mind, okay. And similarly, you know, the, when there were all these gorgeous women appearing to him in his meditation, trying to seduce him, that was coming from Mara. But Mara is his own attachment. Yeah. Find it. It was from a few weeks back. Uh, there's a part where His Holiness talks about somebody like a construction worker mm-hmm. who has had created some bad karma in a previous life. So, uh, some His Holiness is talking about something. Remember Venerable Jampa? Like it was a construction worker. He was a construction worker. Yeah, he had created uh, maybe bad karma in previous lives. So ended up as this construction worker. It's somewhere in a previous chapter, and I really was thinking about the way that was written. It doesn't really ring true to how I understand His Holiness's thinking. I don't remember that at all. Uh, it wasn't in Maybe one of the last teachings. It's like two, three weeks ago. Reckless, that's the word I Oh, yeah, try and find it yeah, and point it out to me. But so, so yeah. you're you're I, saying that I, it sounds like putting construction workers down or not respecting yeah, them. Let's see. Okay, what it, if you look at construction workers in in India? Right. Whew. Yeah, I, I realize it's super unsafe. Super unsafe. They work long hours right. for little money. They have to bring the women do it very often. They bring their children with them, and the babies are sitting on the side. 
you know, near the construction site, the women are cut, carrying platters with concrete on their head, back and forth, back and forth. That's how they pour concrete. Yeah. It's horrible. So, you know, that's... I don't think many people would pray to have that kind of occupation. Yeah. So was, I don't think His Holiness is looking down on those people, but just saying, you know, take care of your karma because you could get born in, in, you know, a situation probably of lower caste where you can't have an education and you wind up with that kind of job. Mm -hmm. So he's not putting those people down. Yeah. In fact, he talks somewhere about about uh, going to talk to all the construction workers. Right. I have that part right here. Yeah. Yeah, that's the exact thing. Um, but I don't think there he talks about. It's just something being that rings funny to me. Like um, the way it's written is quite nice. Until I get to the last sentence. What is the last sentence? It just says, we, we have been in that situation in past lives and maybe in future lives if we act recklessly now. And I, I get that their work is very dangerous and they have very little opportunity and they've done previous karma that would make that and they could have been reckless in the past that got them into this result. Mm -hmm. That I get. But what I don't see anything of is well, how about the people who are running those companies that are putting people okay. in this situation? You know yeah. what I mean? There's like no... Okay. Westerners, we always look at things in terms of social justice. Not always, but very often. Any problem we look at in terms of social justice in this life. His Holiness... His primary way of looking at problems, you know, he says, yes, we need to act with social justice and improve situations now, but how did we get there? It's not only because of the, you know, the people who are running those construction companies and the whole society that still believes in the caste system, even though Gandhi told them to throw it out, you know. His Holiness sees things according to karma, and he doesn't feel the necessity to bring up social issues with every time he talks about something. Okay? As Westerners, we want social issues to be brought up every single time. Okay? And we want to, you know, justice and just, you know, what Patricia was saying before, it's the white people's concern. And, and that only came, that idea only came like about two years ago in this culture. Yeah? Huh? It came quite late and now it's very prominent. But, you know, what do you go do? Go back and, you know, to 15 years ago and criticize, it's very complex, you know, and so there's a lot of people talking now about how do we take modern values and subject historical figures to modern values. Is that fair or is that not fair? 
Yeah, to those historical figures, if you know, like they'll they'll talk about, um, and so I'm not advocating one position or another. Yeah, I have to say that because otherwise people will jump on me. Okay, but you know, when you talk about like the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence and so on, okay, by all men are created equal. They meant white landowners who were free men and, you know, from a European background. They didn't mean everybody. So, but we interpret it as meaning everybody. And it should mean everybody from our modern views. But do we look back and expect those people to have the views that we have now? It sure would be nice and if they really thought about what equality meant, they would have had those views. But what I'm seeing so much is how people can have lofty philosophies, but they are so culturally conditioned that they often don't even see it. You know, and that's how you could wind up with Zen Roshis supporting the Japanese Imperial Army. And Tibetans, you know, uh, lamas supporting, uh, you know, not supporting having bhikshunis. And, it, it, you know, it's this koan. How do you put this together that people can be so wise in a spiritual thing and seem to have social values that are so backward, why don't they take their spiritual values and apply them to their social values? I have no idea. I cannot answer that question because I do not understand people's minds and why they do that. And we think that we are so woke now. And I'm sure in 10 years, people will look back and say, those people, look what they believed. They are so biased and prejudiced. Their structural society is so out of it. And But we don't see it now. We don't see it. You know, we're woke, so we see what the people in the past did wrong. Oh, bad, bad. But we don't see what we're doing. And, you know, who knows what the value system is going to be in 10, 15, 50, 100 years. We don't know. Yeah, it won't be the same as it is now. It'll, it'll change. You know, so here we're, we're faced with our cultural assumptions. Why do we think that every time... You know, somebody, especially somebody who's raised as a Buddhist and who believes in karma, talks about inequality that they should also, even if it's in a chapter about karma, that they should also talk about, you know, social structure. Yeah? Then we should also go to the, the colleges and universities, and when they're having a class about social structure, we should say, you should also talk about karma. 
you people are out of it. You're so biased and prejudiced and you don't even realize the influence that karma has and that the mind is the source of all these problems. And you're thinking by passing a few legislative bills it's going <laughs> to cure the whole thing and that's totally ridiculous. You know, you need to talk to people about creating, uh, you know, good karma. Yeah? And then you're going to have, you know, some professor look at you and go, you know, what planet did you come from? Yeah? <laughs> so it's very interesting to, to begin to notice our cultural assumptions. Yeah. Okay. When in uh, the um, in 1996, when we had the uh, life as a Western Buddhist nun, Venerable Wuyen was teaching the nuns. Uh, you know, she was teaching the Vinaya, and she made a, she made a comment about women being more emotional than men, and I was. <laughs> You know, how dare you say that? You know, it's totally wrong because, I mean, I've been with men who are sobbing and hysterical and, you know, this thing that women are so much more emotional than men, it's hogwash. But she said it and I respect her. Now, does that mean that I can't respect her for anything she believes in because she said something so atrocious like that? Does that mean... Everything she says is biased and prejudiced, you know, and I have to go and get her woke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Work, woke means with it in terms of uh, social values. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, um, it, you know, it's uh, it's difficult. They asked me to talk about women in Buddhism, and I started deconstructing the whole thing of an identity, and they were furious. Yeah, so did I do something wrong? Did I give a bad Buddhist talk because I was talking about emptiness? You know? And I and and when they asked me who you know which historical Buddhist or you know which Buddhist do I emulate and want to be like, and I said His Holiness. I didn't say Tara. I didn't say Machiglapdron. I didn't say Vajrayogini. Oh, how terrible! You know, I'm betraying all women. It's like give me a break. Okay, so, yeah, so we have to look at our biases. Yeah. We have plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, we believe in democracy. Democracy, we're spreading it in the world, rah, rah, democracy. We don't realize that democracy does not work in some countries. And if we try and force democracy on some cultures, it's going to create a huge mess and a lot of suffering. We don't see that. We think democracy is always the best for everybody, no matter what. And I went to Asia with that view, and I'm living in, 
you know, a Tibetan society. I'm living in a Hindu society. You know, people don't, you know, the Tibetans don't believe that democracy is the best. His holiness is trying to encourage him in that way. But, you know, they want him to be the leader. Yeah, he was the one who made them have elections. It wasn't having elections was not their idea. It was his holiness's idea. Yeah. And if, you know, in a monastery... We're supposed to, you know, consensus is very important. A discussion in a Tibetan monastery is the senior gets up in the front of the room and talks. That's what is a discussion. Yeah? You know, should I impose my values on them? What about them imposing their values on me? Is that just as legitimate? No, because my values are better and I have the right to impose them on them. But I'm not, I'm not a white colonialist, colonialist, believe me. No, I, I don't believe. You know, white colonialism is bad, 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 bad. But... Everybody should have a democracy. So I'm not saying democracy is bad, and I'm not saying gender discrimination is good. I'm, I'm saying that we need to look at our own biases, yeah, and just accept that we have them and other people have them, and who knows which way is best, yeah. Do I really know what is the best government for Libya? You know? Do I think democracy is the best thing for Libya? Is that really going to work in that society? Or do they need another system of government that suits their mentality better, at least at this time? You know, what's really makes it clear for me that how Right. But even how what constitutes ethical conduct differs from one society to the next. Something that could be a common thread that could have all the variety of disparities and be still sustainable. Yeah. 